Our scripture is Psalm 73 today. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for your presence. We thank you that we get to enter your presence. We thank you for what we find in your presence. And I pray that you be with us now as we um, study your word. And and I pray that through this means of grace, you you would give yourself to us. And that we would know you because we had been with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, this, I, I apologize for any awkwardness as we're kind of figuring out what we're doing. I've got like a cheat sheet of the worship service in my Bible, and, and, and I'm still using the ESV Bible. I haven't switched the IV. It's just kind of a bit of a middle school dance for probably for a couple weeks, um, but we'll get there. But it's really fitting, actually, to be standing before you guys because I'm not even totally in this, but... Um, my first time to live away from home, I lived in Colorado, and I was from backwoods, Arkansas, and nobody could even understand me. And everybody would ask me where I was from because my 
southern accent was so thick. It's not anything like, you, like it is now, which I know it's still there. Um, and I just got sick of telling everybody I was from Arkansas because then they'd laugh. So I just actually, for real, I just started telling everybody I was from New Jersey. Um, and, and that's for real, true story. And so to now be from New Jersey is kind of um, all those people in, our, in Colorado that were confused are now okay. Um, when, when the googly eyes started falling off Rachel's um, googly-eyed glasses, it's kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, Because that, I want want the next few sermons, several sermons, probably like five-ish maybe sermons, to be really an orientation about, of me for you. Is that how to say that? And and the reason for that is I don't want to come in here casting my vision for Redeemer Hoboken because I've not been here. You've been here. You know the lay of the land. I don't. What I do know is, is what I'm going to be saying and what I'm going to be studying and how I'm going to be processing. And so we've all got our idiosyncrasies, and this community has its own. And so I just kind of want to share with you mine. And so in a lot of ways, it's going to just kind of be my gospel for the for next five or so weeks. And my, not my gospel is in its relative, but my kind of idiosyncratic way of seeing the world and, and ministry and, and what I'm going to be presenting to you. I want you to know it because we're a team. Like we're a church, but we're also, a t- we're the core of the future of this church. And, and I kind of want you to know what we're doing, where we're going, at least with kind of through my own lens. And, and that really begins with Psalm 73, where the googly eyes fall off. I kind of joke that that Psalm 73 is the sermon I preach every single Sunday. I've preached it every single Sunday for 16 years so far, and however much longer I'm in ministry, because what I believe to be my calling to you is, is to meet God and for that to change everything. Meet God, change everything. That's it. The, what, what the scholars call that, like when you have this one bit of information that changes everything, it's called a hermeneutical key, okay? Hermeneutics is like the study of interpretation, and, and, when, and when you come in contact with one bit of information that changes the whole landscape of everything you know and what you're reading and studying, it's called a hermeneutical key. It becomes the key that changes your interpretation. And I mean, like when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, that became a big moment in the history of the church, actually, because we're like, oh, wow, we know a lot more about the time of Jesus than we thought or time leading up to Jesus. It's a new key to change maybe some of the ways we interpreted some of the sects that were happening in Israel. Um, There's all kinds of hermeneutical keys. My favorite example of a hermeneutical key is, is if, I were, if, if I were to take pictures of each of you, right, because I was like, hey, I just want to get to know your names. I'm new here, and I take a picture of you, you know, and write your name on it right at the bottom. You're like, oh, that's such a great pastor, right, to like want to know my name, want to get my name and my, in my face together, and you're like, this is, this, is a, this is a great pastor, right? And then, you know, a couple months later, you come up to my office, and in my office, I have a little closet that I open up and show you, and it's, it's got actually all of the pictures of the people in the church, you know, taped onto like a My Little Pony stuffed animal. That would be a hermeneutical key for you, right? You'd be like, earlier, you were like, what a great pastor to like, know my name. And then you see the My Little Pony closet, and you're like, this person's crazy, right? Like, this is... 
this isn't a good pastor. This person's going to murder me, right? And, and, and it totally changes the way that you see me or whatever. And, you're, you know, it's better than that in the Bible. It, it's the presence of God, but it is the presence of God that is our hermeneutical key. And I think this psalm, more than any other psalm, actually gets at that. And so this psalm is really um, the psalm that is my, I, I would just kind of say it's my methodology. Because the psalm begins like every Christian should. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are impure in heart. And so that's the, the, the baseline is, hey, I know, I know what's going on. God's good. Everything goes right. The world is the way it's supposed to be. And then they just kind of run into the buzzsaw of the real world. Because then in verse two, it says, but as, and you don't have to go back to look at this. I'm just always assuming, I'm gonna kind of, I breeze back and forth between scripture because I want scripture to be most of what I do and say. But at the same time, um, I'm assuming you're not reading it. So I'll, I'll read it to you. But, but so he's like, hey, Sunday school knowledge, that Jesus answer, surely God is good. But, but, but you know what? It doesn't feel that way. Um, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then the psalmist just kind of goes on this little litany of lit, a list of, of, of how easy the, the, the godless have it, how, how, how they're getting rewarded for all the wrong things, all this Sunday school knowledge of God where it's like, yeah, you know, God's good. God's good to the people that he loves. And then all of a sudden, you know, you enter into the psalm and you're like, God's not been good at all to the people that he loves. In fact, seems like he's being good to the people that he doesn't love. Like, and, and so it just kind of goes on this little litany. So there's no pain and death for them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble like the rest of us. Pride has therefore become their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues, their tongues struts through the earth. And I just want to pause that because that's one of a great line in, in, in our world. You know, we look back on, on Israel, and we're like, yeah, it must have been bad to, to be Israel and have, you know, Assyria or Egypt or all these people, like, load, like with loaded weapons or, you know, chariots or whatever they had, and, and you were in real threat, right? And that's what we think of when we think of David running from a king or, or David hiding from another country or whatever. When we, when we think of these things, we think of it so physical, uh, but, but I love that the psalmist, one of the biggest complaints of the psalmist in this is that these people, these, these people out there, their tongue struts through the earth. And, and if you actually read the psalms more, kind of more closely, you start to see that other people's mouths and tongues become actually the greatest enemy against us. It's kind of one of those things like you teach your kids, you know, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt me. And you're saying that being like, yeah, I, I'm this totally not true little kid, right? Because, because actually my boss, when he demeans me, it, it hurts a whole lot, right? He didn't have sticks and stones, but he ripped my world apart. The Bible knows that. In Psalm 11, it talks, it, I love Psalm 11 because I, I, it, 
This is how I feel. It says, in the, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say of myself? So he's talking to the people out there. How can you say to myself, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow and they fitted with arrow and they shoot in the dark at God's people. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I feel that. I feel the attack. And I'm not really attacked. But I feel the, the conflict. I feel the, the accusation that might be, belong to me if I were to out everything I believed and every God that I trusted, right? The threat is real. And in, and in Psalm 11, it's like these, these darts, the tongue of people are like darts. And then actually in Psalm 12, it follows it up and says, yeah, they flatter. The worst thing the, the, Psalm, the, people, the bad people do sometimes in the Bible is flatter, which I think is amazing because we live in a world of flattery, don't we? Like where everybody has to be flattered for what they're doing for the decisions they're making whatever we live and we thrive off flattery and the bible is like don't you dare trust that because it's not their word that should guide you but it does and that's that's what i love about this psalm is it just makes it all just everything goes kind of upside down it becomes this crisis for the psalmist where in verse 13, and I, I don't know if you've ever felt this, in verse 13, the psalmist is like, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I was, God, let me say, I was doing this whole thing so that it would go well for me, right? You, you kind of told me that you loved me and you were going to take care of me and that it was going to be okay, and it sure doesn't feel like it's going to be okay. You know who's got it okay are the people over there that are super bad. The world puts this pressure on us to believe the wrong things. We enter their bubble, if I can say it that way. Like we enter their feedback loop. And it shows up actually uh, later on. It says when I was in, in verse 21 and 22, it says when my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. I kind of, I started drinking their Kool-Aid. And, and we all do it and we all struggle with it. And, and this is why it's my mission and, and this kind of this is my methodology is because we're just filled with their Kool-Aid. Our oldest daughter actually is, is flying back from Mexico today or flying back from the layover today. She was in Mexico and, and she sent us a picture of her with a really sad face and it had this hideous hat on, you know, ridiculous hat with a sad face that, you know, clearly it was a, a, a Mexican tourist hat, right? And, and we were like, oh, that's so funny. You know, she sent this picture with this horrible hat on. And then and actually she sent us a little bit later a, a picture of her in the airport with the same ridiculous hat on. And, and so, you know, we were, we were hoping that she had spent her, and she had, she had walked by this ridiculous hat. It was like, oh, this will be hilarious. I'll put this on and take a picture and send it to my family. She bought the hat, right? And, and, and we spent a month in Mexico last year. I, everybody in our, in our house has things that work in Mexico that don't work in the United States, clothing-wise, right? Flowy dresses, little, you know, I've got this little sombrero hat thingy. And, and, and my, my daughter just took it to, like, the next level of just the most hideous. Have her wear it. Just ask her, say, hey, let me see your hat. Um, it's hideous, but we, like, we're all kind of doing that. We're all drinking their Kool-Aid. 
And, and here's what I love about this psalm. And this is why this psalm particularly, because this, this is a thing that happens in the Bible, right? All over the place. But what I love about this psalm is how it gets resolved. It gets resolved by the presence of God. It says, verse 16, it says, but when I, was, when, I was, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. I was completely confused. It made no sense until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And I can tell you that, that my message to you from here on out, and, and I can tell you that this is what will work, is that worship will change your life. It, it's not, there, there's other places like Josiah in the Bible where they find the, the books of the law and it, and it makes a big difference. There's other places where a prophet shows up and says something and that makes a big difference. Actually, doesn't. Almost, prophets never made much of a change in Israel, truth be told. They're supposed to. I love this one. I love this version of the story because these, this psalmist met God and that changed everything. And there's been long times in my life where I opened the Bible, let's say, and you'll hear me say this a lot, but I, I'm, I opened my Bible in order to learn something. But I want to present to you now and for a long time that we're going to start opening our Bible to meet someone. And that's a difference. There was a long time that I actually read a ton of theology, and I still read a ton of theology, but I, I read a ton of theology, and I actually realized down the road that what I was doing is I was hiding from God by what I knew, and I was kind of like, I'd rather, I'd rather break apart a text than actually believe it. And, and, and we are going to meet God together. We are going to come in contact with him because we're not going to learn some little nugget of information that's going to change us. We're going to meet someone that will change us. We'll do that together. And then the psalmist goes from there, and this is where it just gets, it just gets top shelf Bible after this. It says, truly, you set them in slippery places. So after he meets God, he's like, oh yeah, now I get it. They are in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And they'll be destroyed in a moment. It's going to be like a dream that I wake up from all this. But then it says this. It says, nevertheless, no matter what it looks like, no matter how I'm feeling, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. It's not information that holds his hand. It's not a prophet that holds his hand. It's not his like repentance and belief in the system, right? The, the kind of that, con, that contractual system we sometimes do. It's God that holds his right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's the lesson we're gonna learn together and I know you know it. I know it, but we're going to learn it every single week. It'll take different shape, but we will learn. We have no one in heaven but the Lord. There is nothing on earth that we desire but the Lord. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but God is, will be the strength of our heart in this church. And he is our portion forever. For behold, those who are far off shall perish, shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I love the very end of this because that's going to be all of us for the future of this church. We We will make the Lord our refuge. And because of that, we'll be able to tell everyone else of his works. There's this scene in Revelation 4 where John is whisked up into the heavenly places and he tries to describe what it looked like, the throne room of God. What did the throne room of God look like? And if you ask John that, who saw it, who saw the vision, he kind of starts to lose it. He talks about there was an appearance of Jasper and carnelian around the throne and a rainbow that had the appearance of the emerald of emerald rainbows don't have the appearance of an emerald he's kind of in like there's a glassy sea there's uh there's all kinds of crazy things there's these 24 elders they're okay but then there's these animal things after that that are covered in eyeballs and they all kinds of crazy stuff and and all he really knows is that, that one group says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the other one casts down their thrones and, and bow before the Lord. And he kind of doesn't understand anything that's happening. I love Revelation 4 because it's, it's, it's admission that when we come into contact with God, we don't know what's happening. He can't describe it. He runs short of the language that he wrote in, Greek at that point. He, he can't make sense of that. But I can... You can rest assured that he could make sense of everything else at that moment, right? Like he, he couldn't describe what it looked like to be in the throne room of God. He, was, he sounded like he was you know, something out of Dr. Seuss or some swirly twirly thing, right? It didn't make, that didn't make sense. But I promise when he, when he came out of that vision and he was sitting in the Isle of Patmos where he was writing this and he was there because of exile, that made a ton of sense to him. And when he was actually kind of a hungry, it made more sense to him to be hungry. It made more sense to him to be exiled. It made more sense to him to write part of the New Testament. Everything made more sense because he entered this world that was beyond his comprehension. We meet God and it changes everything. That's our methodology. That's our mission. That's our hope. That is what I want to do. I I want us to be a body of people. We're not going to be the coolest. Y'all are cool. I'm cool, but we're not going to be the cool. We can't out cool, right? We can't out smart. We can't out package. We can't out mission. We can't out articulate. All we're going to do is know God, and it will change us, and I believe it will change this community. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you and we thank you that you're here with us. I pray that your presence with us would become a hallmark of this church, and I'm sure it has been already, but I pray that, our, that, that now we are going to do it this way, uh, with this self-conscious mission, with this methodology of coming to you, I pray, God, that you would change us, that you would just change us for change's sake, that we would look like you, that we would be filled with you. And I thank you for Jesus who sits on that throne. I thank you for the Spirit who transforms our life. And I thank you, Father, for loving us so much to make all this happen. In Christ's name I pray, amen.